medical education for the practicing clinician. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Whittemore, a pediatrician with the University of Utah Health, and this podcast is brought to you by the University of Utah School of Medicine. Today's the first in a two-part series with a fantastic guest, Dr. Stephanie Leiden. Dr. Leiden is a stroke neurologist at University of Utah Health and is a telemedicine expert. She's going to help us figure out the best way to set up a telemedicine visit as a provider, how telemedicine has changed rapidly as a result of the COVID pandemic, and ways to succeed and overcome the challenges of telemedicine, as well as how to continue to teach while in a telemedicine or virtual environment. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Leiden. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us about telemedicine today. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested and involved in telemedicine? Yeah. So I originally grew up in Wyoming, actually, where access to specialty care was very limited. So my family would have to drive about five hours for an appointment with any specialist um, to Denver. And so this, you can imagine, you would have to secure lodging for the night. This could be very expensive where my dad was a primary, our primary sort of income for the family was a teacher. And so sometimes appointments would be rescheduled or canceled based off of logistical issues with kind of scheduling these appointments. And when I was in medical school, I saw telemedicine as a means to maybe help reduce this challenge and improve access to healthcare in rural environments. So I even remember asking kind of my preceptors in medical school their thoughts about telemedicine and and this technology. And even back then there was a lot of hesitancy due to concerns about privacy, um, questions about accuracy um, with the physical exam due to the virtual barrier. And then kind of, the difficulty of establishing rapport with a patient over a virtual medium. Um, But I constantly was still interested that this technology could have some benefit and so have um, kind of pursued with these efforts even in practice. Did you ever see telemedicine in medical school or in residency? Like I haven't seen it until very recently. Yeah, so in residency, I requested to just kind of shadow one of our stroke docs for a day. And that was literally the only exposure I had during residency. Um, And that's really what prompted me to actually do my stroke fellowship at the University of Utah, because they have such a robust telestroke network um, across Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, Idaho. Um, And so I wanted more experience. Tell me, what do you think is necessary for a successful telemedicine encounter to take place, like on both ends, the um, provider and the patient? Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think there's many components to this question, um, and I'll kind of break it up. But initially, I think definitely there needs to be some sort of fast, secure internet or reliable cell service. This definitely can be a a barrier in more underserved rural areas, um, but there are some creative solutions um, that people are trying to tackle. So for example, in the Navajo Nation in in Lake Chinle, there is a a broadband network called FirstNet. That's a public-private partnership with AT&T. 
that allows kind of um, priority access to cellular networks for first responders and healthcare workers. So um, in that sort of area, they actually had primary care docs identify high-risk patients that didn't have access to reliable internet or reliable cell service and would actually go out and take um, tablets that were um, kind of equipped with this access to this cell tower and were able to do telemedicine visits during the pandemic. Um, so I think that that's a, a creative solution for even places that don't necessarily have great internet mm -hmm. um, or cell service. And then who knows, in the future, there's talk that maybe even internet should be satellite-based and something that's allowed for all people. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's definitely something way down the road. Um, and then in regards to kind of a successful encounter, I like to kind of split that up into setup um, where there's both a physical setup that the provider is doing and then a scheduling setup and then how you conduct yourself during an actual visit and wrap up. So I think this is extremely important, um, the scheduling kind of setup. And during that, um, at least within our clinic, this is where patients are offered a virtual or in-person visit. And if they elect to do a virtual visit, um, it's really important for the scheduler to go over consent at that time. Um, and we'll kind of go into maybe like some of the state requirements, mm -hmm. um, but that is something that we are required to also document in our physician documentation is the consent. And that's really for the patient to be aware that they can elect to be involved in this or not. It's, um, they don't necessarily, it's not a requirement. Um, and then if patients have questions about setup for there to be educational sort of resources that have been made um, with instructions on how to set up a, the platform that is being used for the clinic. And so that's another reason that it is, it is important to have internet access or cell service where we could then email to the patient these setup instructions. Um, and then if, for example, you're using like the Zoom platform, the link can be sent to the patient. Um, or if it's my chart, they can get kind of my chart activation instructions. And then during this scheduling, which during COVID, this is going to take much more time than mm -hmm. previous because this is also the opportunity for the scheduler to recommend certain equipment. So if you need a blood pressure cuff, if you need a pulse ox or for OB visits, a Doppler, a scale to measure your weight, the patient can then have time to get all of that equipment before the visit um, and actually kind of, um, when I go over kind of the MA scheduling, have that available so that we have all that data once, once we're actually in the visit with the patient. Mm -hmm. um, I think also during scheduling, um, if we can advise patients to maybe have a family member, if they feel comfortable having a family member present, sometimes troubleshooting just different technological mm -hmm. issues is helpful having two people present. Right. And also from an exam standpoint. So there's certain exam maneuvers that 
even me as a neurologist, I can't do unless there's uh, somebody else present that can help me with that. And so it can be helpful to have an additional family member. And then um, explaining to the patient what to expect. So for example, is an MA gonna be calling them maybe a day before their visit in updating their medical history? Do they need to have all their medications uh, available so that that MA can kind of go through their medication checklist? Mm -hmm. Um, That a provider is likely going to do an exam. And so you need to dress appropriately. I've had Mm -hmm. visits where patients are in their pajamas in bed and we're not expecting me to ask them to get up and walk so I can assess their gait. So all of this during the scheduling portion is is really a crucial part um, of of the setup. And then kind of moving into, oh, and one more thing is getting an up-to-date phone number. So this, in case your connection gets lost, Um, or if you get in an emergent situation, making sure that you have an up-to-date phone number um, in the electronic medical record, and then even an emergency contact needs to be updated. I think Mm -hmm. those are all very important for that scheduling component. And then during the physical setup um, for an important like telemedicine encounter to take place is that physicians and patients to try to model the clinical environment. And so by that, I mean not having a ton of distractions in place. Um, So you don't want a fan kind of rotating in the background Mm -hmm. where a patient could be distracted by that. You don't want a lot of clutter in sight. Mm -hmm. Um, You want the patient also to be in a private, quiet area with minimal background background noise. So no TV or music that's blasting um, is really important. And then lighting. You don't want um, there to be really backlighting. So Mm -hmm. if there's backlighting, that's going to cause the patient to be really shadowed from the front or even yourself to be shadowed. So you want there to be front lighting. Um, Did you tell the patient all these things ahead of time? Yeah, so that's where I think part of these like instructional resources is uh-huh. extremely important. And, and really sitting down and um, working with, a, um, with your MAs, working with your schedulers, working with the docs to think of ways that you're going to create all of these resources and how to get them to patients is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and, and sometimes you are going to have barriers where if you overwhelm them, they're not yeah. necessarily going to do that. And so you can give them this instruction even during the actual visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I also think for providers, this is important is to, you don't want, um, like a door sometimes in in the view because they've done studies that if a door is wide open, patients will report that you spent less amount, a lower amount of time compared mm-hmm. to a provider that does not have a door in view. And these are all just kind of little tricks. Is that like a subconscious thing that I think you're going to leave at any moment or something maybe? That's, exactly. That's what I'm, I'm wondering if that's kind of the thought behind it. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, 
And then if you can't, if for whatever reason you can't have that sort of clutter-free environment, there are backgrounds. So for right. example, on Zoom, you can put a very plain background where it actually, all you see is a, is a blank, you know, color or something instead right. of seeing, you know, the back of your office. Um, those are other options that you have available. Mm -hmm. um, and then during the actual visit, there's a lot of tricks. So I think um, at the beginning of a visit, patients um, should be kind of, you can ask them to show identification mm -hmm. um, just to make sure that that's actually the patient you should be seeing. Um, and then establishing who all is going to be involved in the visit. If there's a family member, having them kind of sit in view of the camera as well um, and writing their name down because you don't have body language to be able to kind of direct questions. You're going to be asking their name. Uh, so kind of establishing that at the beginning. If a patient is using a cell phone, is asking them to place their cell phone on a stationary setting because it can be extremely distracting for the provider if the phone is kind of moving all over the place during this conversation. So establishing that right at the beginning um, or having the computer kind of set on a table or just a stationary surface. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, is for the provider to try to frame their face in the middle of the screen. Um, if, you know, if your part of your head is chopped off, that's going to be very distracting. Right, you right. Imagine. Right. Um, and then you could have, you could wear your lab coat with your badge showing that can <laughs> allow for a sense of security that you are their provider. You are who you say you are. Right. Um, and then I think the other very counterintuitive is, uh, is your eye contact. So, um, it's, you'll often be looking at your picture on the screen mm -hmm. or the patient's picture, but in order to have good kind of eye gaze, you should actually be looking at the camera. Um, and if you're not explaining to the patient, you know, I have multiple monitors, I'm looking at your electronic medical record during parts of the encounter, or I'm right. looking at your imaging. Right. Um, so they don't think you're distracted uh -huh. um, is really important. And then, your communication during the actual visit is um, you need to be a little bit more succinct and a little bit more paced um, mm -hmm. because you can, your kind of recommendations can get lost in translation a little bit easier over a virtual medium um, because you don't have body language. Um, sometimes if audio isn't very well, um, it's just another barrier. And mm -hmm. so kind of, allowing for a very well-paced, succinct um, explanation of your recommendations, and then asking patients to then kind of report back to you or read back, um, have read back verification of your recommendations mm -hmm. is going to help with their understanding. Um, and then that kind of leads into the wrap-up for a good telemedicine. And this is another component where there's new systems that need to be worked out in every clinic is before, during an inpatient visit, you are able to use kind of body language to cue that this is the end of the visit. You have a scheduler that can schedule that 
patient's next visit right then and there. You have mm -hmm. an MA that can come draw labs. You have um, like the ability to pr print out their after visit summary with all of their kind of recommendations. And now we don't have that. So right. I have to kind of in my, my EMR with Epic CC the scheduler specifically, this is the follow-up. And then the scheduler calls them a couple days later to schedule their follow-up visit. Mm -hmm. I then have to CC um, my MA with any additional diagnostic tests so that the MA has to call the patient and like maybe help them through if there's anything like additional steps to get those diagnostic tests done. And then sending even patients a summary on their my chart um, of what we talked about or any additional sort of edu educational resources. And that all takes much more time yeah, to, sure. as a doc to factor that in mm -hmm. to your visit, um, I think is really important. Yeah, that's, that's a lot for one visit. How exactly. long are your normal office visits as so a specialist? I, that's where I think as a neurologist, we are, we have a luxury um, compared to other providers because we definitely value for new patient visits, like a very thorough history and exam. So ours are at an hour. Right. Um, and, and so we, we definitely have much more time than other providers to right. try to cram in all of this. Yeah. I'm just thinking my, as a primary care doc, my, my appointments are 20 minutes, but there are some primary care doctors that even do 15 minutes and all that prep sounds like it takes more than 15 minutes. Like it puts a big onus on your support staff. No. And that's, that's definitely something we've seen is there is um, kind of an increase in the demand of needing kind of more support staff kind right. of with these virtual visits than what we previously needed. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a non-English speaking patient, how does that work? Or do you just not do it if they don't speak English? Yeah. So I think that's another great question. So that goes back to our scheduling component. And so usually what our schedulers will do is if a patient needs an interpreter, they will list on our kind of epics, like on the view for scheduling, like translator needed, they'll have the phone number listed for um, interpreter services. Mm -hmm. And then they post on that the link for, for Zoom or whatever medium we're doing their visit in. So then when I come to initiate the visit, I first will call the interpreter um, based on the phone number listed. Mm -hmm. They will then get the patient's um, MRN and date of birth, and then they'll see the link, uh, or like the mm -hmm. uh, Zoom link or whatever, and then they will join the visit and be present for when we kind of, when the patient connects. So they'll be in front of a computer and also a participant on like the Zoom meeting. Yeah, exactly. And then um, same thing if we have to do a telephone, that's just where I'll call interpreter services and they'll right. connect me to the patient. Right. There, there have been issues like with our emergent telestrokes and emergent teleneurology where if an ER doc has an interpreter on the phone and then they're on speakerphone and that um, every time I've been in a situation with that there's just the sound quality is so poor right. it is a very difficult scenario and in those cases we really recommend an in-person interpreter to be present um, right. in that situation. Yeah and then I'm just thinking of my 
my clinic, which is, you know, primarily non-English speaking, the challenges of having to do the scheduling separately and the follow-up like labs and stuff, you know, a lot of my patients have a hard time with communication in general and then like getting somewhere to get the labs and the imaging done, but it can all be done at once. I have a right. good, but I mean, definitely has its challenges. No, and that's, yeah, I think with the MAs is um, how much I've been utilizing them more, even right. like for their pre-visit, like check-in, um, <laughs> we're actually having them also try to do technology like dry runs, because mm -hmm. that was another thing when we would have our visit with the patient and they're trying to log on, even though we would kind of recommend they try it before the day of the visit, they may not have, and then you're spending 15, 20 minutes of their, their clinic visit right. trying to troubleshoot these technology issues. Right. And, and so I think that's another thing that kind of needs to be resolved before their visit starts. Yeah. So will they make like a, another Zoom meeting and have them just do that to see if they can log in? Yeah. So wow. like, and that would be when they are going to verify their medications. That's okay. when they verify their past medical history either maybe a day before, or it is all in the, in that day of the clinic visit, but they know that, you know, 30 minutes ahead of time, they're actually going to be getting checked in by an MA. Okay. Got it. Um, beforehand. Right. I've had some, um, telehealth visits where the people have been in the car. I don't know if you've had that at all, which can be challenging. I mean, usually that's since I'm a pediatrician, it'll be the parents with the kid like in the back seat in the car seat or something but that's really hard oh yeah and then if the service is kind of cutting in and out and then the noise right yeah. and then a lot of times we'll end up just turning it into a phone call as opposed to a video call i don't know if that's something that you guys do yeah no that's we do definitely if we're not able to feel very comfortable with kind of the video quality or if we just aren't able to troubleshoot whatever technology issue the patient's having, we commonly, unfortunately, may have to switch it over to a telephone visit, right. um, which isn't as ideal because you want to be able to do a comprehensive exam as best you can over camera. Right. Um, and that's kind of eliminating that ability. Right. And you mentioned about the consent. So is that something you said that the schedulers do in advance for you? Yeah. Usually they will um, go over consent. And then when we kind of introduce ourselves, we'll also kind of make sure that the patient is still comfortable performing the visit over this virtual medium. Okay. Um, and then it, and that just allows for if there's any additional questions the patient has about privacy um, or security, we can kind of also address those for them. Have you ever had any patient like say no and refuse to do the virtual visit? I haven't, not just because I think since the question was originally asked, usually right. it's the patients that had like consented for the visit. Right. Um, but I know from our scheduler standpoint, there are patients that just don't feel comfortable and, and they end up either doing a telephone visit or an in-person. For sure. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about the privacy stuff? Like what do you feel like privacy concerns that you have to address yeah, I think during the public health emergency, there's been, um, so some regulations have been kind of relaxed a little bit to allow for, you know, just this uptake of a virtual visit so that we can actually see patients. Um, I think that 
Um, after the public health emergency, there's going to be kind of more of a shift to wanting more kind of dual encryption, security, and privacy. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like um, BidYO or InTouch, these that already have kind of very secure HIPAA compliance, um, there might be kind of more of a cry for that than now where um, you technically could do like FaceTime um, or Skype. Mm -hmm. And we, we may see that the public wants more kind of of these privacy standards in place going forward once the emergency kind of ends. Right. Yeah. And just to piggyback off of that, in terms of COVID, do you think this would be happening if the pandemic hadn't happened, like this telemedicine surge? I mean, not in the same way. No, I, I, I've always been a proponent that telemedicine is going to continue to grow, but right. I don't think any of us that's been telemedicine champions expected the accelerated uptick yeah. um, that has happened because of COVID. Um, it's definitely um, increased and changed um, a lot on the telemedicine landscape where some large health systems have seen an increase of 10 to 100 times in, in their telehealth visits. Wow. Um, there used to be sort of limitations based off geographic region um, where telemedicine was even kind of allowed. And now that has been lifted. Maybe some like states just wouldn't allow it? Yeah, where like you had to meet certain requirements. So it needed to okay. be um, either like in a rural setting or if it in an urban setting, a hospital that couldn't um, provide cert certain sort of specialty access. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was just a lot more kind of red tape right. around it that even some of the services that even allowed CPT codes. So before there was 90 CPT codes, um, and now there's almost 240. Um, and, telemedicine CPT codes? Yeah, and well, and based off of providers that are now allowed to even do telemedicine. Oh, okay, I got it. So before allied health providers like PT, OT, speech, uh -huh. social work, they weren't allowed to really bill for telemedicine services. Like there was a lot of restrictions in place. Right. And now that has been expanded. Um, the reimbursement rates um, has kind of also been, there, there's less restriction there mm -hmm. uh, where services are kind of being billed as though an in-person service took place right. during the public health emergency. But not for a phone visit, right? Just for a video visit. Yeah, correct. Yep. Just for the video visit. Um, and each state also has different um, kind of requirements. So it's important, depending on where you're practicing, mm -hmm. um, that you're aware of those different kind of regulations. Um, so an important thing, I think, to know is that if you are seeing if you're licensed in Utah, but you're seeing a patient in Wyoming, you need to also be licensed in Wyoming to perform right. that visit. Right. And a lot of states have um, are allowing temporary licenses and they're doing so in an expedited fashion. And they're allowing sort of um, a little bit extended deadlines if you were previously credentialed or had privileging at a hospital 
for renewal, like they're mm -hmm. extending out those renewal deadlines. Um, so all of that, I think, has been um, kind of liberalized where there's not as many regulations. Mm -hmm. um, but this is something that's constantly changing yeah. and to con constantly be updating yourself about. Awesome. Well, it was really great talking to you. I learned a lot and I think our listeners will too. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, bye.